all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and he adds, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, pass by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I return. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. And there's a lot of irony here in this conversation. Specifically that, this man was not honest. He was not integrable when he questioned Jesus. We see that. It says there very clearly he attempted to what? Catch him, to test him, to find error in him, to publicly shame him. Now, this is a motif that we see constantly with self-righteous people. People who have this mindset of superiority theologically, socially, economically, they always like to see someone else be put down. And it's, it's nothing new. I mean, it's been happening since the very beginning of time. And we see that often through the gospel narratives where people tried to put Jesus to the test. Because if they could discredit him, if they could get him to blaspheme, if they could get him to do something that would be out of context of the law or, in a spiritual sense, terrible, then they'd have a foothold to make accusations stick. But the point of this is not to teach us about the lawyer. And the point of this is not to teach us about the Samaritan. The point of this is not to teach us about the Levites and the priests and all this other kind of stuff, though we, we learned some of that last week. The point of this parable is to teach us about Christ. And then also to teach us something about ourselves is that at any given time, we can be like the lawyer, we can be like the Levite, we can be like the priest, and we can be like the Samaritan. We could also be like the man laying half dead on the ground. We can be a victim of others. And then there is a practical thing that I'll talk about this morning. It's a very practical instruction. Jesus says, go and do likewise. So just because there's rich theological overtones here and then there's extreme depth when it comes to understanding uh, you know Christ it doesn't mean that there's not a simple practical application Jesus redefines in this message who our neighbor is who our neighbor is and so that's where we'll sort of pick up today like I said there was I don't know how many parts there was let's say one two three four five six seven six seven Seven plus some others. I got through the first one last week, so we're going to jump through these next six or so pretty quickly this morning. 
but defining our true neighbor. Now, some of you don't have a, an experience that I'm going to ex- explain. Some of you don't have any bearing to say, okay, I know what you're talking about. But let's just say that some of us have been in a situation in our Christian culture or a church or with a family member or with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker or whatever, where there have been this, this, there's been this isolating mindset. We don't want to be around anybody that's not like us, don't dress like us, don't talk like us, don't smell like us, don't eat like us, don't do like us. And, and I've seen, I mean, I, being a pastor for 25 full 12 months, it's a long time. That's a long time. I was thinking about that the other day. I have talked to tens of thousands of individuals face-to-face about Scripture. That's not... It's not nothing. And I'm thinking about all the things that I've experienced, and it is different because some people who aren't in the pastorate don't get this experience. So even for me, my experience is, is, is just so far different than everybody else's. Because I may say things like, I can't believe that. Man, I've had that happen 10 times or 12 times. I know 100 people like that, but you may not. It doesn't matter if you know one or a hundred. There's always somebody that's going to come into our lives that try to segregate us or separate us from something or someone. I mean, we do it even in not a spiritual sense. Because we feel like, well, if it's not spiritual things, it's political things. If it's not political things, it's economics. Or maybe it's education. You know, for Robin and I, we, it wasn't, there was no spiritual sense in which we chose to home educate. None whatsoever. It, was, it had nothing to do with our faith. It had everything to do with other convictions that our faith informed, but it was other convictions. Now, for some other people, like, oh, no, it's all about <laughs> what we believe according to X. That's great. But so in the homeschool movement, if you can call it that, in the homeschool community, it's very easy for everybody just to think, oh, we're all alike. Uh, we're not. The same thing is true in church. Same thing is true in community. I mean, just because I'm a white man doesn't mean that I believe, act, think, and want every other thing that every other white man wants. But yet you see a dude at Tractor Supply, and he's like, how's it going? What you think? And they will, you've been there. They will impose whatever they're thinking on you. Ain't that right? You see? And I'm like, no, that ain't right. I don't, I don't believe that way. I don't agree with that. And so there's always some place in the world that we live in where somebody's going to try to isolate us from something else or make us sort of like them. And for some strange reason, when it comes to spiritual things, it's almost a disease. It's almost a disease. I remember the first time someone came up to me and talked to me about the idea of buying property as a church, like hundreds and hundreds of acres, and building houses inside a gate and a wall for the church to live in. And I mean, like investment property, build like a, like a, you know, a suburb? No, no, like a commune. I'm hey, buddy, back up for a second. You on jokes right now? No, I'm not joking. And to sit down and talk to this fella who at the time was in his late 70s, and explain to him that that not only was completely unbiblical and sinful, it was weird. It was weird. 
Now, the sentiment, I get. Man, I love to just be away from all the knuckleheads. The problem is when you put a wall around people, you're going to wall in some knuckleheads. So I'd rather just be free to live where I want to live. That's all. I've never lived in a pastorial. I've never, li- never lived in church-owned property. Never would. Never would. I don't care how. I mean, I'd rather live in a tent before I live in somebody else's house Tell me where i got to be and what I can. i got a friend right now who, who can't. The church is right next to the house. <laughs> he can't escape. He can't do anything. Why were you cutting the grass on Sunday morning? I mean, you know, because <laughs> it was a lot. I mean, you can't. You can't. You can't isolate like that. It's not biblical. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that we're in the world, but we're not of it. The scripture gives us all sorts of things. But there's this mindset that when it comes to certain things that we, we aren't responsible for loving other people the same. And Jesus eradicates that right now. Who is my neighbor? He answers. I give you the, I give you the, the one who has compassion is the true neighbor. And here's the answer. Who is the neighbor? Anyone in need that we can help. Let me, add, let me say that again. Any single human being that's alive that is in need that we can help is our neighbor. No matter if they're a cult, a crackhead, or a character. It doesn't matter. Now there is something weird about not wanting to love someone or different than that redefining what love is because you've probably heard this well here's what love really is love is keeping it real and speaking the truth in love and if I have to shake you down and destroy you to show you that you're wrong or that you shouldn't be living over here or that I'm going to put you to the test that's not love okay it's not love nowhere in the New Testament is the church given that as an instruction It's not love. And so what this lawyer did to test Jesus was not love. But yet in his heart, he thought, I'm doing what is right because this man is violating every known absolute that we have in my faith and in my community. And as a man with a voice, I'm going to expose him. And Jesus, being the God of heaven, answered in such a way that it's infallible. Here's a story about a man who was robbed And left for dead. And we saw last week a Levite and a priest come by and go the other way, leaving this man to die. But yet they are the epitome of compassion. Levites, they're the ones through whom the priesthood live. Tribe of Levi had no property, had nothing. They are the priests. The priests are the ones who mediate between God and man, who do the sacrifices, who pray, who offer offerings. They're supposed to be the one who understands the mercy seat and establishes a presence before God and man. But yet, no compassion there. I mean, this is very pointed teaching. See, Jesus didn't have to explain himself. These people got it. These people got it. And then remember the Samaritan. The Samaritan was the person who absolutely was unclean, unworthy, and disgusting. Someone who could not be around you. Someone who could not be in your presence. Someone that if you were a spiritually mature person, if you were caught looking, talking, or associating with the Samaritan, you would lose 
everything. You would look, it wasn't like, oh, people look bad about you. You would lose your livelihood. You would lose your home. You would lose your family. You would be discarded from society and have to live in the wilderness as a homeless person. Now, see, I want you to get that. It's severe when we think of a Samaritan coming into the presence of an Israelite. That's why when Jesus talks to the woman from Sychar, it blows the disciples' minds. Number one, that he would dare speak publicly to a woman. Two, offer her something to drink out of his own pitcher. And three, that she was a Samaritan. I mean, these were horribly hated people. And so the Samaritan became the epitome, listen to this, of Christ. The very one that was hated. So you sort of see the Christological principles that we'll see here. But who, who is the neighbor? Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Because it's not just about who is my neighbor, who am I also a neighbor to? The one who I have compassion for. So neighbor is not about social construct. Neighbor is not about ethnic construction. Being a neighbor is not about religious identity. Being a neighbor is about actions of mercy and compassion. So see, that's why Jesus says, go and do likewise. Because it's not just a message of sovereign grace and a picture of Christ. It is a commandment of living as such. And we've got to, as a culture, stop trying to pit these two things against each other. We are told the truth of Christ, and we are told to live as Christ. And these are both and, always, at the same time, constantly. And there is no feeling of love. There is only ever a being of love, a doing of love, okay? Love is always and ever, ever will only be something we do for someone else. And it is not about correcting their doctrine, correcting their social constructs, correcting their politics. That's not love. It's about compassion and serving. And we don't know who this victim was. But I'll tell you this, the victim looks a lot like us sometimes. And the only person who came to be a neighbor was the one who absolutely couldn't be a neighbor to anybody else in the presence of God according to culture, according to theology. So beyond these social constructs, Jesus, in all senses, is speaking in a very revolutionary way. He's speaking in a place that without having to get right down and put his finger in the face of these people, he spoke against this strict social and religious boundary. And beloved, I think we as Christians need to get that for a minute. I am guilty of having this type of bigotry. And I've chose that word on purpose because I've been trying to water it down. No, I'm just saying I'm trying to be careful. No, it's not careful. It's fear-based bigotry. No matter what it was fueled by, there have been times in my life where I felt like, well, if I befriend X and they're 
in this type of theology or they're in this type of cult or they're in this type of thing, then something's going to happen to me. I'm going to, and no, you know what? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can undermine the gospel of grace. Nothing can refute the word of God. And we need to be more involved about finding intersectionality with the world we live in in a way that God can use us to preach the truth. As we have... Excuse me, as we have compassion, as we have empathy. I'll never forget the time I was told by a student. Well, so-and-so said they don't want you here anymore at this particular institution because you're not a Republican. And that's the truth. I'm not a Republican. I haven't been a Republican in a very long time. A long time. Sometimes people think, how are you a Christian? (laughs) Don't get me started. You see? But the very fact that that could be something that could thwart someone's spiritual compassion because of a particular political party, or not a political party. In that sense, it was not a political party. And you'd be shocked, look around the room. (laughs) There's no such thing as God's politics you see but I'll never forget how hard that was to digest to think to myself number one how did they know that and number two what difference does it make you see and some people that will listen to this will go I knew something was weird about him (coughs) you ain't seen weird yet You haven't seen weird yet. If you think it's weird, if you think I'm weird now, wait. Just wait. And I've seen people in California where we would be doing community ministry amongst multi-faiths, different types of faiths, different types of, I mean, Eastern mystics. Why? Because there were hungry people that needed to be fed. It didn't matter if these people knew Christ or knew some weird element in the sky. If you had compassion to feed hungry people and I wanted to help, then I'm going to help you. And that is something that as Christ followers, we need to get really straight. And I think this teaching helps us see that. It doesn't mean we agree with their doctrine. That's silly. I don't agree with half of what I think about other people say. But it doesn't matter. Why? Because the first thing is is that when we come to a particular conclusion, it's years of, 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 of transportation in our thinking, right? We've been on that highway for a long, long time, riding back into on that interstate, going through all these exits, and we've come out to a particular location. And here we are. Someone just hearing the outcome is not going to be able to follow us there because they haven't taken the journey. So we're not going to be able just to say, well, this is the way I think, and you should think that way too. No, you have to go through the journey. You may say you believe in the gospel 
of Christ. You may say you trust in the sovereignty of God, but the way you act, think, and worry probably could prove otherwise. And it would be very easy for me to stand up here and, and get all preachy and go, you need to believe, you know, and what does that do? Telling you what you ought to do is not going to carry you to where you ought to be. First, you have to go through the journey. So some of you are going to have to go through the journey starting today about the people in your life that you keep from. Now keep in mind, there are some people who do destructive things that we need to isolate ourselves from. But we don't need to make them destructive when they're not. And I think it says a lot sometimes when we look in our lives and we say, okay, how many, how many unbelieving people do I love and take care of? How many unbelieving people am I involved with on a day-to-day basis? And the question, when it's answered, is not an indictment. It's just a reality. It just is. It's not good or bad. It just is. Just answer the question. Say, okay, this is where I am. Who is my neighbor? I got neighbors. Y'all got neighbors. Physical neighbors. It's hard to get along with them when they're not in the faith. But I'm finding it's harder to get along with people in the faith. Have you ever felt that way? And when I'm getting some homes lately and I'm talking and somebody says, well, I just don't know if I believe the gospel, I almost take a, a sigh of relief. Oh, praise God. I won't have to fight with this person. I'll just share it and move on. Versus someone who begins to pull out the King James and tell me that the Bible that I have in my backpack is uh, not the Word of God. I'm going to borrow your 1611 one day and pull it out. How about this one? I mean, come on. I don't, I don't, you know, that's okay. I'm not going to isolate myself from those people, but I'm also not going to work myself to a frenzy to try to fix that nonsense. I'm not going to do it. The Samaritan's actions illustrate that anyone in need, regardless, regardless of what they believe, regardless of where they are, regardless of what they're involved with, is our neighbor. Scripture says to love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer quoted it. Because here's something that we know. We know this, beloved. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Soul. Here in Luke, it's, it adds the fourth thing, mind. And then to love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, when he's put to the test one time, they ask him, what's the greatest of all the laws of the prophets? And he says, the greatest is this, but of equal importance is to love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the reality. The only way, and John in his first epistle undergirds this. Paul also in his letter to the Corinthians undergirds this in such a way that it's it's non-debatable. I mean, you can argue it from whichever way you want to come, but it's undebatable in that the only way you actually, literally love God is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm going to say that again. The only literal way that you can ever love God is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
We teach children, I mean, even in secular context, humanism teaches this, secular humanism, Satanism teaches this to children, to treat others as you want to be treated. There's an intersectionality there. And there's a dichotomy. There's a, there's a divorce between the creation of, of, I mean, from the context of, of Christianity and its application, its living out, and all of these other worldviews. Because Christianity, by and large, is not known for compassion, love, and patience. It's known for hard-headedness and, and, and hatred. Well, yeah, we love you. That's why we've got to be hateful. <laughs> That's just silly. That's silly. And, and the, the problem comes is I think we have become so isolated in our, number one, not reading the Bible. We're not reading the Bible. We're just using the Bible to constantly fuel our little pets, our little pet peeves and our little pet projects and our little pet ideals. We're not literally reading the Bible in paragraph form as a culture. We're just using the Bible to prove what we think we ought to be doing. It's just such a silly, silly, silly notion. But we get to the place where we're, we're, we're doing so much And because we're not engaged in the absorption of God's word, the spirit of God is not softening our hearts. We don't have compassion. We're not being led by the spirit. And we're we're just discouraged and we're, 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 we're depressed. We're scared. We're isolated. We're discontent. I mean, think about it. But yet when we open the scripture and we just absorb it, we just eat it, we just meditate on it, God does a supernatural work in us. The same thing with this here. We don't have to parse this out to some, I mean, there's a lot of linguistic things I can talk about. It's not necessary. It's not necessary. It's, I like it, but it's not necessary. What's necessary is for us to see. that we need to reevaluate who our neighbors are. And I think as a church, for me, I've been doing that for a little over a year. And for us, I think we're going to start focusing on some of that as well. I mean, remember some years ago, some of you remember, we have these harvest festival type things. We'd have these community things. And some of us call stream flack because we dared go. That's nonsense. Okay? Well, 3,000 people are going to stand outside your building. I'm not going. (laughs) I'm going. And during those times, you know, I was constantly called on. I was constantly sought. I was constantly asked, hey, can you come do this prayer thing over here? Absolutely. You know why that doesn't happen anymore? Isolation. When you separate yourself from the world that God's called you to minister to, don't cry or don't be surprised when there's nobody calling on you. Out of sight, out of mind. We can't be out of sight, out of mind as Christians. And we cannot be a cult in and of ourselves because of theological distinctions. And we will work through these things as a people to learn who our neighbor is. 
And the reality of this, Christ is the true neighbor. The Samaritan in Christ, here's Christ who is hated like the Samaritan, and he goes and he finds the one in need, finds the ones no one else is able to help, and he helps them. The gospel of grace and neighborly love. This emphasizes that Christ's sacrificial love on the cross is the ultimate example of neighborly love. And we ought to, likewise, love selflessly. There's also something here we need to think about in the context of the law versus grace. I mean, think about the law says, don't associate with these people. Don't talk to these people. Don't be around these people. But yet the very one who you hate is the very one who is the true neighbor. I remember saying this. I don't even know when it was. It was sometime in the last three or four years. I said it in a sermon and someone, it, it turned them upside down on their head on social media. But I said that the cults often love better than the church. How dare you say that? And then I, I received that rebuke. Going, okay, maybe I was wrong. You know what? I retract that rebuke. I wasn't wrong. And I don't care. I know what I'm talking about because I see it. And the ugliness in which I was approached from that statement showed this man had no love in him. Therefore, I don't even have to call him a brother. I don't care what theology he believes. Doesn't love me, you're not my brother. But you can be my neighbor. See, there's a difference. There's a difference. The priest and the Levite represent adherence to the law, this purity and this spiritual ritualistic separation, so-called holiness. But it's limiting. It's exclusive. But the Samaritan's actions point to an inclusivity unbounded by grace as offered by Christ. Now, I'm going to say something right now that's going to, as a soundbite, is going to really Russell some jimmies. And that is that the gospel of free and sovereign grace, in a sense, has a universal elemental application. In that Christians can love and should love everybody because of the love of God for them. There we go. There we go. So we ought to be a true neighbor. We ought to live out the gospel. We can practice unconditional neighborly love, not just proselytizing, not just evangelizing. In fact, I don't even want to get started. I might need to preach a little series or two on my thoughts on evangelism. Maybe I'd do that on a YouTube video or something. Save the pulpit. But we need compassion. We need service. And let God's evangelism come through that. So let's expand this. Let's expand some application of this teaching. Uh, Proverbs 3, 27, 28 says, Do not withhold good from those who, to whom it's due. 
when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it when you have it with you. See, I believe modern society in the context of evangelical life reflects the attitudes of the priest and the Levite. Sometimes we want to avoid involvement because it's not my cause. Or we can even prove, we can show, okay, now Jesus didn't come down here. He didn't come to earth. He did not establish his ministry in the context of meeting all the needs of all the marginalized. However, he destroyed the concept and the mindset of permitting that type of stuff as believers. His mission was to save us. And his message is clear. Because we've received his grace, we ought to be gracious to others. Always. Always. Tangible actions of kindness. This, this actionable compassion. Every single day. We need to think about how, how can we do that? How is there, are there things in our lives that, that we have neighbors that we're just not seeing? And it doesn't mean we've got to solve the problem. Beloved, let me tell you something. You, you can't solve the problems. You can't change people. But you can pay attention when there's someone who needs something to eat. Someone who needs a kind word. Someone who needs prayer. Someone who needs encouragement. Someone who needs, like I got a, a person right now, like, Pastor, can you find me a set of boots and a blanket? <laughs> I'm like, why is that so difficult? I'm sitting there thinking, who can I call? Let's organize the masses and get a set of boots. Just go buy a pair of boots. And I think if we need, to, we need to make stuff like that known more, you know? I mean, could you imagine your biggest need? Say, what do you need? Anything you need? I need a blanket and some boots. Let's get some blankets. Let's get some boots. Because when we serve like that, when we know who our neighbors are, when we are doing what we can, when we're engaged, we literally highlight and mirror Christ. We mirror Christ. We are called to do this. They are practical demonstrations of the gospel. First John, it's replete with this. If you have the world's goods and your brother is in need and you don't give it to them, the love of God isn't in you. What does that mean? That you don't grasp the love of Christ. Because you have nothing to show and nothing to give. You're not loving others. Therefore, the love of God has not manifested itself in you in such a way that it's beginning to grow out of you. John doesn't say, you're unregenerate. John just says, you're worthless. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13. All these uber-spiritually mature people with all these great gifts, these manifestations of spiritual things, he goes, y'all are garbage. To quote one of our brothers, he loves to say that. I'm just trash. <laughs> y'all are worth, y'all are like a noisy, clanging cymbal or gong. Now, let's put that in, you know, 
contemporary American tradition. A toddler with a lid and a spoon in the kitchen. I should have brought one as an object lesson. <laughs> Everybody shaking their head no. So you get it. Okay, you get the point then. No object lesson needed. I'll do it next week. But I mean, no, no, I mean, imagine trying to serve or trying to be spiritual or trying to be, I don't know, mature. And everything we do is just like smash, bang, smash, bang, smash, bang. And nobody can stand to be around us and nothing's working and everybody's running for the hills. Throwing themselves off of short porches and stuff. If I break a leg, at least I'll go to the hospital. <laughs> That's what it means to have no love. I think we need to deal with the theological implications of this. We cannot earn our salvation through good deeds. We cannot prove it through good deeds, but we can display it through good deeds. That's what James says. Be not just hearers, but be doers. For faith without productivity is dead. It's worthless. That's what he says. It's worthless. It's dead. It's like a dead horse. It doesn't do anything but rot. Your knowledge of the truth is worthless if you're not working through it. Worthless. And it's not what the evangelical culture has said is worth something. It's what the Bible has said. Just be available as you can be. Beloved, I've learned I can't be as available as I've always tried to be. I can't solve my own problems, much less yours and everybody else's and the world's and the climate, the cost of gas. Can't solve it. We need to transform our faith into action. Why? Well, because I believe that there's a necessity in understanding the greater good in the context of the gospel. Like I said a minute ago, there is a universal sense in which the gospel is beneficial for the whole world. Even the reprobate, because God's people can love others in kind. There's a greater good. Each act of compassion contributes to a larger narrative of love and redemption. Our kindness and our mercy, even though they may be small and invisible, they are not isolated events. They are not isolated events, but they are part of God's grand design, bringing healing and restoration to a broken world. And yes, we know that ultimately only those who come to know Christ, only those who are saved by sovereign grace, only those who are made alive by the Spirit, only those who are gifted faith are counted in that number. But this is not for us to know, nor is it for us to count or to quantify. It is just for us to live according to the promises of God that we might live out His, His grace with everyone. With everyone. And as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. God has purpose to save us, and we remain in this world that we might be fruitful in it. I 
I mean, look at the life of Jesus for a minute. I mean, look at the people he made angry and how. He incensed the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They hated him. Why? Because he lived in a manner and amongst people who were absolutely debauched. They were godless, horrible people. Zacchaeus, that's political suicide to go to Zacchaeus' house. It's commercial suicide. It's business suicide. It's social suicide. But grace is not bound by social norms. And get this, grace is not bound by human judgment. No matter what people think, it doesn't make them right. The, Lord of the, word, the word of the Lord is right. The Lord of the word is right as well. <laughs> so our acts of compassion, our kindness, our understanding the plurality of who our neighbor is, it's a response to the grace we've received through Christ. I mean, Micah 6.8, we don't hear from that text much. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We need to live justly, we need to love mercy, and we need to walk humbly. Because that's what we've received. Jesus, the ultimate good Samaritan. When we think about Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, we see Christ's humility. We go to Philippians chapter 2, and it, it tells us all about Christ who was God, but did not take equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him. <clears throat> Highly exalted him. And he put Christ at above all things, and that every tongue on heaven and earth and under the earth, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. I mean, Christ fulfills this parable. Because what the Good Samaritan did <coughs> as a rejected, hated one is what Christ ultimately did as a rejected, hated one. Nothing's changed. In every little subsection of some kind of Christian faith, there's always going to be your Pharisees and your Sadducees. The question is, am I one? Or are you one? And I hope not, but as we see it, then we go, whew, I gotta, I'm being a little pharisaical. Jesus ministered to the outcasts. He ministered to the people who were not allowed to be part of the structure of mercy or grace or spiritual things. He ministered to the ones who were rejected. I mean, think about the man born blind. And his disciples, what, is, what are they asking? Jesus, he walks up and there's this man begging. He'd been born blind. And one of the disciples said, teacher, 
what did he do or did his parents sin to make him be born blind? And we don't have to revisit that at all, but Jesus goes, neither. This man was born blind that the glory of God may be revealed in it. And then that same day, this man becomes, he gets his sight. And he runs into the Levites and the priests and the Pharisees. And he says, look, I can see. And they kick him out. You're a liar. You must have been lying the last 40 years or however, I can't remember, 30-something years. You must have been lying out there, lying. You could see. Let's call his parents. Hey, Mom and Dad, was this boy born blind? He's a grown man. I'm not speaking for him. He can tell you himself. Why? Because they didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to get ostracized. They didn't want to get kicked out of the temple. They don't want to lose their livelihood. They don't want to lose their income. They don't want to lose their family. They don't want to lose their property. Jesus was all about that. That's why he had no place to lay his head. I mean, Jesus' life and ministry represented how grace triumphed over the law. The law of death, the law of requirements. And this parable is seen sort of like a critique of that system and then an exposition of that system, like an expose of the heart of those who are bound by it. Paul talks about it in Romans 5, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he died for us, and that is the ultimate act of compassion. Justice requires recompense. Justice requires death, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of life is, of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So how is it that we can stand before God the Father in righteousness? It's because Christ took our penalty. That's compassion. That's love. That's kindness. That's grace. That's mercy. And if the God of the cosmos can take on humanity and stand in our place, then can we not stand in the gap with others who are different than us? Let's think about it for a second. Let's think about this in, in closing. What's the call to action? And I think we need to realize and absorb the radical nature of the gospel. It's radical. It's crazy. It's absolutely absurd. It's something that's just like, it's not this piecemealed, mealy silliness. I mean, it's crazy. That God would show compassion and mercy the way he did. It's just like how justice is satisfied in the context of a substitute. 
of the righteousness of the God-man being credited to us, that we now are righteous, and that one day we will, listen, share in that glory, in that manifested absolute beauty by being made like Christ anew. Don't forget that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lamb serves His people. He's not standing there with a sword. He's serving again. And we stand with Him. Don't mix it up. The only time you see Jesus standing with the sword is in a posture against His enemies as a victor. Not before his people as a king to be bowed down to. Think about it. We need to embrace the gospel. God extends grace and salvation to all for whom Christ died. And that gospel service is expressed to all people when the church serves and loves them. And we ought to be about making sure that the whole world not only hears the truth, but sees the truth. And we need to live out the gospel every day. We need to live out our faith through acts of compassion and kindness and neighborly love. Not just good deeds, but manifestation of the love and grace we've received from Christ. Sometimes it's about forgiveness. Sometimes it's about compassion. Sometimes it's just about being there and letting someone tell us something that they need to say. And when we do these things, when we live this way, we're going to grow. We're going to transform. We're going to We need to seek every single day ways to express Christ's love as it comes available. We don't have to go out hunting it. Just be prepared. Because Christ is our example. Christ is our example. The first of the year, I'm going to start teaching through 1st and 2nd Peter. And then 1st Peter chapter 2. question is, for what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten, you endure? But if you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Listen to this, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Beloved, Christ is also an example 
He's much more than that. He is Savior. He is King. He is Lord. He is God. He is the Christ. He has satisfied God's wrath. He is our righteousness. He is our wisdom. He is love. But He is also our example. And my prayer for us is that we would begin to think about being that example. That we would become Christ-like in more ways than we've ever become before. And in the freedom of the gospel without any care about what the world would say around us. He paid for our sins in his body. And now we are his righteousness. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this day. For everything that you've done in Christ. For everything that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for sustaining us, for keeping us, for never letting us go. How many times in our lives are we all at a precipice that we can just walk away, but we can't walk away when your Spirit has sealed us. And as far away as we can get, we're still never gone. So Lord, as we learn from the truth of these parables, Lord, I pray that it would drive us to mercy, that it would drive us to celebration, that it would press us into a place of of just resting, not worrying, not laboring, but resting. But Father, that it would always, also in that rest, help us establish a place of action. Lord, begin to open our boundaries our borders, our lives to other people. Help us to begin to see and pay attention to things around us. To be mindful of where we are every day. And Lord, I know that you will bring all these things into our lives as you've seen fit. Father, transform our hearts that we may know who our neighbor is. And that we would not put walls around us because of theological differences or political differences or other types of social things. That we would do the gospel every day. And we thank you for this power and for your love and for everything, Father, that you've done in us. And Father, we also pray that you would be actively working through us. In Christ's name, amen.